This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 886, A Conversation with Ron Friends. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 886. It's hard to believe we've had that many. Um, it's funny, the uh, the last time that this uh, this issue, this this issue, this episode's guest is Ron Friends. The last time he was on the show was back on episode 776, uh, back in May 2020. This is actually his seventh appearance. Uh, if you want to go back and revisit all the other previous uh, times I talked with Ron, you could check out episode 296 back in 2015 for our first chat, uh, episode 408 for our second one in 2016, uh, and then we did a, a lot in rapid succession, uh, starting in December 2019 with episode 734. Uh, then 744 in January 2020, he came back for our creator commentary on A Next issues one to six. Uh, then a month later, February 5th 2020, he was on episode 748, doing a, actually a joint commentary with uh, Tom DeFalco as we talked about A Next seven to twelve, and then the one after that was a creator commentary uh, on 776, where we talked about Amazing Spider. Spider-Man 280 to 281, Amazing Spider-Man 96, and which was an annual, and Spider-Man Hobgoblin Lives 1 to 3. So it's been over a year since I've had Ron on the show, and considering that the last time I had him on, there was like a what five-month period where he did four episodes. So it's been a while since we had him on, and it's always a pleasure to talk with Ron. He is uh, an extremely giving creator. He's always willing to have a, a chat. Um, he's got some really good insights into comics and the industry, and we talk a lot about kind of high-level concepts about you know things that may or may not be missing in the industry, and I, I feel like some of it we may have touched on in previous conversations as well. Um, but uh, you know, I, this is my show, and I want to talk about it again because uh, I was again I always enjoy being able to touch base with Ron. Uh, he's got a new project coming out called Heroes Union, um, which is coming out in August, which we talk about as well. But you should uh, definitely look for Heroes Union number one. It's a 68-page square-bound book. Uh, we talk about it here. It's coming out on August 4th. It is available at comic book shops. It's available through Diamond. Uh, so we'll, we'll get into that. We talk about a lot of different things. We talk about uh, people, places, all sorts of wonderful things. Uh, if you're a fan of Ron, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Uh, is it's a you know a classic Ron and Friends chat if I've ever seen one. Uh, you can always email me Adam Sh- Adam Chapman at the Comic Shenanigans Podcast at uh, Comic Shenanigans at gmail.com. Rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again for listening, and uh, let's jump right into the episode as I welcome back to the show for his seventh appearance, Ron Friends. Enjoy. Just a quick note before we get into the episode, there was two, uh, a couple moments where the connection went out a little bit. I tried to kind of nip and tuck the audio a little bit. It might be a little bit obvious, but there's uh, yeah, two moments where uh, it uh, did drop out a little and tried to salvage what we could. Um, but it was just a brief moment, and then we pick up pretty seamlessly with the rest of the conversation. I just wanted to let uh, just uh, quickly mention that it was uh, was noticed, and we did do what we could to try and uh, work around it. Thanks again, and let's jump right into the episode. Enjoy. Ron, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me again. Adam, it's always a pleasure, sir. Thank you for uh, for inviting me back. If you can believe it, I believe this is your uh, your seventh appearance on the show. I would not have guessed that. My goodness. <laughs> My goodness. But I guess if we count the 
if we count the deep dives into A next and everything, I guess, I guess we would come up with that number, wouldn't we? Yeah. Absolutely. It's funny, we were, you were mentioning off podcast, and actually I should say that you've been doing uh, some great other podcasts recently, so I'm not upset that you're cheating on me with others, but uh, you were uh, you did an, an absolutely outstanding deep dive into The Kid Collect Spider-Man with a friend of the show, Dan Gavazdan, on the Amazing Spider-Attack podcast, and you were joking how you weren't you were going into it, you weren't sure if you were going to have kind of enough to talk about, and it, it made me laugh a little bit because, you know, we spent, you know, almost six hours talking about 12 issues of A Next. Obviously, you were going to have a lot to talk about in the Kid Collect Spider-Man. Well, it, it was an 11-page story several, several years ago, and I'm always unsure of how much I recollect, of how much mm-hmm. I actually... Uh, remember from these things a lot of the conversation with Dan actually came from the fact that he was reading off the plot Mm. he was reading off of Roger Stern's original plot and quite frankly I had not remembered that I had at at all veered from the plot my memory was that the plot was pristine and I just followed it Mm -hmm. but in the course of the conversation it came out that there were choices I made and and things that I didn't necessarily do on that page, but I saved it for another page. And, and you know, the, it, it reminded me of choices that I was making along the way that became fodder for discussion. Uh, and, and, and it was a bit of, a, of an examination of Marvel style, you know, working mm-hmm. Marvel style. So, it, it, yeah, it was, it was an interesting conversation, but it was more interesting than I was even anticipating. Uh, given my my usually bad memory, so, yeah. well, I mean, I think it worked so well on uh, a lot of different levels. I mean, obviously, as you're saying that, you know, he was able to get recollections that you couldn't have even maybe even realized because, again, being able to actually look at the original plot, which is also a marvel that that plot kind of exists in full format, like it's just kind of there. And the fact that we can now kind of look back to it as a historical document, because again, that story is one of the most beloved Spider-Man stories of all time, and again. You know, one of the shorter, most beloved stories, but still so concise and so wonderful. And the fact that the plot exists in such a, you know, it's still there. We can still look at it. And I don't know where that came from or where, where in the archives that was originally kind of stored and then found. But the fact I, that it exists. I don't know where it came from either, because as I discovered as we were discussing it, it was my copy of the plot. Because the numbers that were written, the divisions that were made in the plot for page count and everything, that was my writing. So, <laughs> so I don't know whether I've sold it off in the last 20 years or so. Uh, actually, it would have been well, more like 40. <laughs> but, uh, or, or how that got out there, but I believe it was the copy of the plot that Tom Brevoort uh, posted on his blog. Mm-hmm. I believe that's where Dan got the the pencils and the plot. So I'm quite at a loss to explain it myself. But, you know, these things have all come home to roost. And the fact that it's an 11-page format, it, it's a nice little concise way to kind of explore the you know, working Marvel style, which, you know, is, is something I'm always a little surprised that people are still so curious about because there's, there's so many different shades of it. There's so many different uh, degrees of division of labor working Marvel style. And of course, these days, very, very, very few people do work Marvel style. I mean, almost, uh, I think pretty much everything shifted over to full script these days. Uh, But 
Uh, so it makes people curious about Marvel style, and it makes people uh, mistaken about what they think Marvel style is. And, mm-hmm. and you know, there was the very, very, very loose Marvel style that Stan Lee invented, and then the much more uh, institutionalized version where the writer was still required to turn in a written plot <laughs> and contribute page breakdown and contribute uh, you know, to the storytelling as much as they were willing mm-hmm. uh, to to uh, contribute. And that's how, you know, when I got in in the 80s, it was very much, I uh, had been broken down and, and institutionalized to a point where I was receiving mm-hmm. com- fairly complete plots from the writers that I worked with, you know, from Joe Duffy and Bruce Jones on KSAR actually just produced little short stories mm-hmm. I mean he would just structure them like short stories he didn't do any page breakdown at all he would just basically start his little story and and tell it with he said she said type of uh, quotes and dialogue and things like that and it was completely left up to me to break it down uh, into into pictures which was very much being thrown in on the deep end when that was the first job I was ever doing for <laughs> Marvel you know uh, I mean, I, I think working with Joe Duffy on Star Wars, uh, Bill Mantlo on Marvel Team Up, those were my first exposures to a traditional Marvel plot. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, th- yeah. I think you you put the the kind of the the finer point on it there is that there's this idea of the kind of the mythology of what Marvel style is that why people are always so interested to kind of find out more because especially you know fans who you know you read about you know Stanley and everything he kind of did and how he his version of Marvel style being extremely loose and as I think that's where that kind of the mythology starts and that fans are kind of like well at what point does it change to full script how does this kind of happen so when you talk about the institutionalization of the Marvel kind of method and how that has changed by the time you kind of break in in the 80s I think there's that disconnect for a lot of fans and not really knowing how it changed and how it kind of morphed over time and as you said like there's so many decisions that you, you have to make um, and like as you said even with a Bruce Jones kind of plot where it's not broken down by you know pages at all and it's really just all in your wheelhouse I think that's the fact that there can be so many different styles of this quote unquote Marvel styles why people are so interested to kind of dig in and find out more about it especially because it seems like you know it's a bit of a lost art because people do stick to pretty you know thick uh, very detailed strips, scripts these days well it, it definitely has become a lost craft let's call it because I know uh, over the last 10-15 years uh, I spent some time over at DC around the time of the New 52 uh, because DC had gotten to a point where they were working full script almost exclusively and they had uh, young talent that w- were not willing and or able, let's put the slash in there, you know, uh, to work plot. And Tom DeFalco was doing work for them over there. He was doing a book called Legion Lost. Mm-hmm. And he did a stint on Superboy uh, briefly during the New 52 uh, launch. And I was brought in because they were using uh, some veteran guys like me and Larry Hama and Scott McDaniel, I understand, and probably some others as well, uh, who were versed in working plot script to come in and do page layouts for the young talent who were left kind of at loose ends by, uh, 
you know, the blank page and a plot. Mm -hmm. uh, they just didn't really, they weren't trained that way. They weren't trained to do that kind of thinking. They were trained off of a full script. So I uh, worked on several issues of Legion Lost and uh, Superboy, and there was a, was a team at the time that was launching to Ravagers, I think it was called. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, so they were, and they, and they did like a crossover with Teen Titans that was like, you know, three teams teaming up to battle this big bad guy, and it was like huge battle scenes, and it was all the Falco plot. And they called me and said, would you be interested in helping us out a little bit? And I said, hey, I, I, uh, I, and there's very little I know in this business, but one of the things I know is how to manage a DeFalco plot. So, sure. <laughs> uh, so that's, there were several issues of those different comics that had special thanks to Ron Friends, which is the way they were doing the credits so they wouldn't have to divide the, uh, the, the residual mm. further. Uh, they would just pay us a flat fee to do the, uh, to do the layouts. And, um, so there were several issues of, of different comics that had, you know, Tom DeFoco stories that had special thanks to Ron Friends, and there were people out there that were presuming that that meant, you know, I was helping them with story content or, you know, suggesting ideas or something. Tom needs no help with ideas. He's, <laughs> he's a, uh, you know, fully proficient writer, of course. So it, when I was credited like that, it's because I was doing those kind of uh, story breakdowns for, for the, the various illustrators. So, How do you feel about but, doing uh, uh, doing projects like that where you're kind of, you know, doing layouts like I'm that? I'm torn I, about it. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, like... I, I, I'm torn about it. I, the bottom line on it, though, Adam, is that they weren't going to bring us veteran guys in to draw the books anyway. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that people don't understand when they are upset that there are veterans who are not currently working on monthly titles is that the industry has shifted to a degree that quite often our last page rates are like completely out of bounds hmm. for what the publishers can afford to pay now. Uh, because of the internet, they've managed to, to save a lot of money by employing people from around the world uh, from, from different levels of uh, you know third world countries and things like that that they are able to get for cheaper than they could get American illustrators hmm. that's one of the things that the internet has opened up but from what I understand the page rates just aren't what they used to be yeah. And uh, the books are more tightly budgeted than they've ever been before. So quite often when people are on Facebook and they're complaining about, you know, the fact that there's a lot of us out there that are still alive and still relatively vital and still looking for work, but we're not being hired by Marvel or DC, a lot of that has to do with these budgetary concerns. Because comics, unlike a lot of other branches of commercial art, comics will not... I, I've never gotten a call from an editor saying, here's our budget for this issue, we can afford to pay this, would you be interested? Hmm. Nobody has ever approached me that way. They, they know what your page rate was, and they, they don't want to insult you by suggesting you take less, but I have actually been parts of projects over the last 10 years where DeFalco and I were being paid our original page rate, 
but we were told initially that we might not be able to get Salvasema as the anchor because they didn't have it in the budget. Mm. And at that point, I stood, I, I was going to stand up and say, well, I'll take less if we can get Sal paid his rate. And the Falcons said, sit down. <laughs> Don't, they'll find the money. If they want Sal on the project, they'll find the money. Don't worry about mm-hmm. it. And he had turned out to be right. Um, but that has happened a few times. So, you know, it's hard, I, I think it's hard for fans to understand given the success of the Marvel movies and all this kind of stuff, that the comics industry is not in the shape it was in in the 80s. It was much healthier in the 80s and 90s than it is right now. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of decisions that are being made, I mean, obviously they can afford some very, 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 very talented illustrators. Um, And I don't think the industry as a whole needs to apologize to anybody because it's an entertainment form. It's an entertainment industry and entertainment... The entertainment industries are always looking for the next big thing. For sure. You know, I, I think most of us understand that. I think most of, uh, of, of, of uh, the veteran illustrators that have worked in comics and have moved through the industry, I think, we, I think we get that to a certain degree. We may resent it, we may not be happy about it, but mm-hmm. I think we get it. Yeah. Um, I, I think you're right that there's not as much of an understanding of the fan community and how that works. I remember a couple years ago, actually, there was a, a Word Balloon interview with, I believe, Brian Hitch, and he was talking about his run on uh, Hawkman at the time. And he actually really delved into the budgeting of the book as being like, you know, they didn't know if they could have him illustrate the entire year because of the budget of the book, but they could have him on, you know, for the first arc or so, and then he might have to, you know, have a few issues with a fill-in artist because so they could bring the overall cost down so that they could bring him back for other issues. And that was really eye-opening because I never... I don't know why I never really thought of it that way and how they would budget right. and how this is why sometimes you're seeing fill-ins. It's not because the main artist can't do it, but because the main artist maybe is too expensive for them to be able to afford them for the full year's worth of issues. And I never really yeah. thought of it that way. No, it's, it's, it's frustrating because, as I said, uh, there, there are times and certain projects that if they approached me with what their budget was and offered me a page rate, I could decide whether or not it's something I wanted to do or had the time to do or could fit into my schedule, you know. Um, but they don't. They uh, they assume, I, I guess to a degree, I guess what, it's nice that they don't insult us. Mm-hmm. I have talked to some veteran craftsmen who have contacted the different publishers and have have requested page rates and sometimes it hasn't gone well <laughs> you know sometimes it's like oh my god they're expecting me to take less than I did when I entered the industry mm-hmm. in the early 80s um, so you know it, it is it's, it's all business oriented it's all you know front office things that, that I tried to avoid like a plague but it, it is what it is and I, I don't think a lot of people perceive that. I mean, they, they don't see that. They see that there's still plenty of material out on the racks on their local comic shop. So they assume everything's as hunky-dory, neato-fine as it ever was, and that some of this Marvel Studios money is trickling down to the comics, but that's not the way it works. No. So let me ask a question, and not to give away the farm for a second, but is there a project or like a character or even a creative team you'd work with where 
your page rate would be kind of a, a secondary concern. You'd be like, I have to do this. This is a once in a lifetime, or this is this is something that's so big, so important. I've done to a me. lot of projects. Uh, any, a lot of projects I've done in the last few years have uh, uh, have been done for love of the form. Mm. The work I did for Archie Comics. Archie Comics could not afford to pay as much as a Marvel or a DC, um, but then. Marvel and DC can't afford to pay what my old page rate was anyway. So I took considerably less than what I had been paid at Marvel to work on those uh, three or four Archie projects that I worked on with Tom DeFalco. Um, and, you know, in Archie, they they worked, from what I understand, I was getting one of their top rates, but they just didn't pay, didn't pay less, you know. I've worked for independent publishers that have either just commissioned me through Catskill Comics to do covers or they've commissioned me through Catskill Comics to do short stories, you know, five-page things, ten-page things. I worked on a graphic novel through Catskill Comics that, uh, you know, we were able to come up with a page rate that was in the ballpark for, you know, it was a fairly solid page rate, but that was a, a patron who was self-publishing who was in a financial position to do that. You know, but I've done lots of projects for you know for much less of a page rate, uh, just because it sounded like fun, or it's somebody that I knew personally, or it was a project that I thought was uh, you know should see the light of day. You know that kind of thing. So I've worked on a lot of things with different page rates. That's why I wish Marvel would be a little more upfront about it. If they if an editor was actually interested in working with you, I mean the the truth is. Uh, Adam, that there's so many, it's not like when I worked in the industry. When I worked in the industry, the editor did the hiring, and the editor chose the people he wanted to work with and everything, but there's extra levels of talent, uh, what do they call it, talent acquisition and, and talent management and all this kind of stuff going on in the industries now that... You know, an editor has to go through somebody else to say, I, I'd like to get this guy to do variant cover for me, but that has to be approved by somebody. The sketch has to be approved by somebody besides the editor. Mm. Then, you know, then the anchor needs to be approved by somebody besides the editor. And it's just, there's a lot more plumbing to the uh, to the craft than there used to be when I was active at Marvel and DC. So... Mm. You know, the industry continues to evolve and change, and the people that are used to the way it works now uh, are used to something completely different than what I was used to. Um, I was just realizing, I, I was speaking to a gentleman who wanted to do an article about the comics industry, and I was realizing that, that most of the people if I have, I've had contact with at DC, most of the editors that I've had contact with at DC over the last 10, 15 years aren't there anymore. Mm. Um, one of the gentlemen that I did a lot of work for, most of the work that I did for D.C., uh, Brian Cunningham, uh, he no longer is employed at D.C. He's, he's working in the publishing industry somewhere else. Uh, so, you know, you also have to take that kind of thing into account. You know, I mean, when, when young illustrators come to me and, and ask me my opinion about their work and then to see if there's some way I can help them, uh, you know, Spider-Girl was the last regular series I worked on, and that has been a while. Mm -hmm. So most of the names and faces that I knew and worked with are either gone or have moved into upper management, 
and are not doing those kind of things at the same level, you know, that they were before. Uh, so, you know, uh, <laughs> it just is what it is. You know, I'm, I'm working on some variant covers right now for uh, Nick Lowe, the Spider-Man editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's contacted us about a couple of things. That 10-page story we did for, uh, what was it called, the Sensational Spider-Man self-improvement, self-improvement yeah. that we did. Yeah, the... Uh, the ten-page backup we did that we did with Nick. I mean, I've done some other variant covers through other talent coordinators and such, but uh, but I'm doing I'm doing some variant covers for him right now. Two variant covers for him that'll be coming out uh, over the next several months. And so it's it's always a pleasure to get an email directly from the editor and all that. But like I said, even those had to be approved by somebody up above him, apparently. You know that kind of thing. So and that's not the way it used to be, really. You yeah. know. So I'm going to switch gears for a second, just because I always I'm always sure. such a huge fan of your. You have a great Facebook kind of um, presence. I'm going to say, but you're always putting up artwork. I'm, I always love seeing the commissions that you put up. They're always so much fun to look at. I always feel so much um, uh, anxiety though because I, I, I one of these days I have to request a commission from you. I'm embarrassed that I haven't yet. I have a, three or four different pages of original art from you, but I've never actually requested a commission, so I'm not on that list yet. But every time I see one of these amazing uh, things that you put up, I'm always filled with this anxiety about I got to pick something really good for Ron to eventually do when I when I request one. So what have what have been some of the more exciting ones that you've done lately that kind of jump out at you or are a little bit maybe different than your typical well, stuff. I'll, t- I'll tell you one thing, Adam. I understand exactly how you feel because I do not have a, a personal drawing or a commission from Salpasama for the same reason. Oh, really? Because be, Yes, because, you know, if you were going to ask, if I'm going to ask Sal for a drawing, what do I get? Do I get Captain America? Do I get the Hulk? Mm. Do I get Spider-Girl? Because that's what we worked on together. Do I get Rom? Do I, you know, I, mean, <laughs> I? How do you encapsulate your love for Sal Buscema in one drawing? <laughs> that kind of thing. So I've I've never asked Sal for a drawing because of that reason. Um, one of the things that I do own, I I, I own a Nick Cardi Aquaman. Uh, it was a deal that I cut through a his art art rep uh, years and years and years ago, and I own a John Romita Mary Jane portrait and that was because of my rep Scott Cress because when I was doing the San Diego con years ago with uh, John Romita Sr. and his lovely wife uh, Virginia um, he was doing free sketches for people and he did a Mary Jane and believe it or not this was back in the what the early 80s the mid 80s He's doing these free sketches, and he did a Mary Jane, and nobody wanted it. People were standing around the table, but nobody wanted a free John Romita sketch, wow. believe it or not. And I, I was standing behind him watching him work, and I went, I'll take it. <laughs> and he went, what? And I went, I'll be happy to take it off your hands, sir. And he went, no, no, no. I'll, if you want a Mary Jane, I'll do you a really nice Mary Jane. We no, I'm not going to give you this. You know, it was a quicker sketch. And I said, John, that's not necessary. And he goes, no, 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 no. So we never spoke of it again. Years and years and years passed. And ultimately, my rep, Scott Cress, was in a conversation with somebody. It was either John Romita directly or somebody working with John Romita. And he took the opportunity to remind John of this, you know, <laughs> half 
past promise that never fully, that was never fulfilled. So John did me a, a beautiful Mary Jane portrait and sent it to me with a note that said, you know, what are you bothering me for? You could have done this yourself, you know, that kind of thing. And it was, it was very kind and very flattering. And, and so I, that's one of very few pieces that I own uh, that I've asked other pros. I mean, I used to approach other pros either from, from the indie comics or whatever and ask them to do a Thunderstrike for me when Thunderstrike was being published. So I own a few of those. I own a Paul Ryan uh, convention sketch that he did for me of Captain America that I that I treasure, um, you know, and uh, and not a whole heck of a lot else. But uh, but but again, I've never, you know, with all the time I've worked with Sal, with all the times that I've asked him to ink a pinup here and something else for somebody else, a cover for an independent publisher or whatever, mm -hmm. with all the times that I've approached him about those kind of things, I've never asked him for a drawing for myself because I don't know what I'd ask him. I honestly don't know. I, I know Sal from so many different projects, and I've loved his work for so many years. I, I don't know what I would ask for. So I understand exactly where you're coming from. That being said, your question, I, occasionally I still get, I, I get requests that do surprise me that end up being a lot of fun. Um, I would most recently... I did one of kind of the comic version of Thor versus the Hulk from Ragnarok. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I pulled reference from Planet Hulk and I dressed Hulk more like he was in the comic book version of that and I used the traditional comic book version of Thor uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, we call it a mock cover, basically a big splash page of, of them uh, heading into battle each other. And you know, so there, there's some fun. I'm working on a couple right now. I'm working on a saber tooth Wolverine two-figure thing where they're they're heading at each other, clashing. Um, I still get a lot of requests for Silver Sable. I'm mm -hmm. working. I have a Silver Sable on my desk right now. I have a uh, a, a mock cover where sometimes we'll put the Spider-Man title in. But people have asked for you know like a, a reimagining of like a cover with Puma and those are always fun to do. Mm -hmm. Right now I'm working on one that the person was trying to encapsulate uh, mine and DeFalco's run on Spider-Man in like one shot. They <laughs> wanted Spider-Man versus Hobgoblin versus Puma with the black cat in there and like floating heads of the Rose and Mary Jane and maybe the shadow of the uh, black costume in there too. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and um, that's what I did. I, I tried to put that all together, tried to get as many those elements in there and not have it suck and uh, so that's another one that I have on my desk right now that I'm working on so uh, it, it's they're, they're fun I mean I, I'm you know I still have the work I'm doing for Sid Comics and Binge Books uh, that I mean lately with uh, doing publicity for uh, for the Heroes Union I it's been hard to, to sit and have one full day where I just get caught up on things you know mm -hmm. so I'm a little behind the eight ball, and I owe people work, but um, I'm doing the best I can with the time I have in the day, you know. For sure. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. When you do do Plus these... my cat has had some health issues and things like that, uh, you know, so. When you do do these commissions, I'm always curious, like, you know, how 
do you have like kind of a general sense of how long a, a typical page is going to take? Like, I'm just curious. I mean, obviously commissions are different than working on sequential work because, you know, it's, it's obviously a different muscle, right? Because you're usually doing a larger splash, et cetera. It can so, be. Yeah. So how do you approach that from kind of a, a scheduling standpoint? To be uh, like, I'm gonna... I've been doing this for almost 40 years and I cannot tell you. <laughs> I, have, I have no system. I have no system in place for that kind of thing. In fact, I'll tell you something. I can get, if I get hung up on one piece, it can log jam me for the entire, let's say I have like five or six pieces on a list that are my next, you know, my next slate of commissions. If I get hung up on one, it can, it can hold up, it can hold me up on all of them. Hmm. In fact, just recently, I had, uh, somebody had asked for a, a Silver Sable based on a piece I had already done, but different. So usually when that, when I get that kind of a request, I'll, I'll adjust it. I might flip the image and then I'll play with it a little bit to make it unique and different. And that's what I did with the silver sable piece. And I, I blew it up to size. I usually work half size and then I blow it up. I blew it up to size. It was sitting uh, next to my desk as the next thing to do. And I wasn't happy with it. Hmm. I would look at it day after day I'd find something else to work on besides that and day after day I would look at that thing and look at that thing and I'm going oh, that's just it wasn't doing it for me you mm-hmm. know so I finally and this has happened more than once finally after thinking it's just me I'm just being ridiculous and blah 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 I will just say screw it I'm going to redo it I'm going to come up with something else and I did I came up with a complete different position she's still wearing the same clothing it's still the same idea but she's in a completely different position and all this and and i liked it much better and i took that down to kinko's and blew it up and and now i'm working again (laughs) now i'm getting stuff done because i was able to remove that log jam from my uh from my creative sluice um so yeah it's very weird i i I am not, for all the years I've worked in the industry, I'm not near as, as uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I had it in my brain, uh, disciplined, mm. as I should be, <laughs> you know? When the deadlines come, then you get really disciplined really fast. Or when <laughs> rent is due, then mm. you get really disciplined really fast. But, uh, but as far as uh, like a structure, a day-to-day structure of what I can expect, uh, uh, you know, a cover to take or a commission to take or a page to take I've never been able to get that down to a to a science mm. when you do do these commissions and obviously some of them end up being inked by you know some of the, the I would say the best inkers who've worked on your stuff how does that process work in terms of getting them to ink those commissions uh, usually it's all handled through uh, Scott Cress at, at Catskill um, Brett Breeding just inked a piece of mine that I did a couple of years ago, uh, a Spider-Man commission uh, that was like a reimagining of a Puma cover. And I penciled that, I full penciled it years ago, not knowing that the that the commissioner ever had any intention to get it inked. And who knows if he did at the time or not, but he just recently had Brett Breeding ink it, and Brett did a, his usual fantastic job with it, so... Uh, and I believe he inked it on the original board. I mean, sometimes they like to keep the pencils and they'll 
mm. you know, produce a blue line to have an inked or something. But I, I believe in this case he inked it on the actual board, which I actually admire that more. I mean, if you're going to commit, then commit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> And Brett is a you know is a is an easy choice for things like that. He does a wonderful, wonderful job with uh, you know he takes his work very seriously, and I think he captures my work very, very, very well and uh, enhances it as an anchor should. Uh, so you know I, I he just sent it to me the other day. He completed it and sent it to me. He sent me a scan the other day, and I mean it's gorgeous. He did a wonderful job with it. So. Uh, but oftentimes, I'm not even privy to whether or not it's to be inked. I mean, oftentimes, I mean, I do a lot of my own inking. That Spider-Man one I talked about, that that, seeming, that sounding, that, that one that sounds so complicated, uh, that one I will be penciling and inking myself mm. in black and white. Uh, but we will get Jack Morelli, who is also a member of Catskill, to, uh, I will pencil in the logo, but he'll ink the logo. Okay. Uh, and make sure that it's done professionally, you know. Hmm. Um, so, you know, we have a an array of talent that we put that we combine however we need to to give the to give the, the client what they're what they're looking for. But um, but yeah, I mean, uh, quite often, if if I'm only asked for full pencils, I just do the tightest pencils I can, and I have no idea what the commissioner may or may not do with that moving forward. Mm-hmm. So let me ask a, a really weird hypothetical question. Let's say. Uh, we have a time travel device, and we drop you off in the 60s, you're in the Silver Age of, of comics, and then you can ink any of the kind of classic Silver Age artists. Who would you want to ink the most? I, ne- I never trained myself with the inking tools. I'm not much of an inker. I, when I ink myself, I'm using mm. uh, Micron pens and Flare pens and Sharpies and... You know, I, I've never really trained myself with uh, with crow quills and brushes and such. Um, so that would be a tough one for me. I've, I've never thought about that. I mean, as far as guys who I'd like to meet and sit and watch them work or apprentice with, um, uh, we're talking Silver Age? Uh, mm-hmm. Lots of them. Uh, Al Plastino, Nick Carty, mm-hmm. uh, Kurt Swan, uh, Kurt Schaffenberger. Uh, you know, if I was mentoring, if I was being mentored by any of those gentlemen, they would have insisted I learn how to ink, you know, <laughs> um, because you you did it all then or you didn't survive, you know. Um, I That was not the case by the time I came along in the 80s. But uh, now my Silver Age of, of uh, fanboy stuff, I mean, because depending on when you think the Silver Age ended, I mean... That, that would include Ditko and Ramita and Kirby and, uh, you know, tons of Marvel artists as well as DC guys. I mean, my brother and I started with DC, much like a lot of kids do, mm-hmm. you know, Batman and Superman. And, and uh, you know, so, I mean, one of the things I do for pleasure now is, is I go to this one comic shop that has all its back issues out in long boxes, and he has quite a back stock. And I buy stuff I remember having when I was a kid that is no longer, you know, in, it's in pieces now. It was read to death, you know, yeah, yeah. and uh, didn't survive to this day. And I will go and rebuy books that I remember fondly from when we were kids. And in some of these, these are stories I haven't read for 50 years that I'm, 
you know, I remember the cover image and I'm rereading the stories to go with them, you know, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. it's great fun for me. It's wonderful nostalgia. So. For sure. My brother was recently, I have a brother three years older. He was recently in the hospital for some serious surgery. And uh, I took him uh, a FedEx envelope full of these books that I've been buying. And I specifically took the ones that we bought together as kids, you know, that we remember having around the house and everything. He got a big kick out of seeing the cover images and everything. And uh, it sparked quite a conversation about our, you know, carefree days, uh, (laughs) reading comics and dreaming about uh, working in them someday for me, you know. Mm. Did you ever get to meet Kurt Swan? I'm sorry, say that again? I said, did you ever get to meet Kurt Swan? Briefly, yes. At a convention, he was an amazing man. Like so many of the the people of his generation, the the artists of his generation, he was an an incredible gentleman. Very soft-spoken, very surprised at the attention, you know. Mm. Um, And if you asked him for a sketch... He was going up into his, he, was, he would then leave the floor and go up to his room and he would execute these beautiful, like ballpoint pen drawings that were just beautiful. I saw a couple of them. And as much as I would have loved to have had something like that, I didn't want him to do that because it was obviously a, an effort for him. Hmm. So I asked him to sign a couple of books. I asked him to sign the uh, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow books hmm. that he did with Alan Moore. And I, all I asked him for was for him to do one for me and one for my brother, and draw us the S-Shield. <laughs> and I got one signed for my brother Rand and one signed for myself. So I have that at the studio. Um, and, you know, he goes, really? That's all? I said, that's more than enough. <laughs> I, can't, I can't thank you enough for all the enjoyment that, that he has given me over the years. I just... I mean, between Superman and the Legion of Superheroes and his work on World's Finest, I mean, the guy's incredible. He's just an, an amazing talent and uh, and, a, and a great gentleman. Yeah, I can't tell you how 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 nice it is after all these years that when you know you become a comics fan and you go like, wow, it's it's just comics are such a part of my life, of such a part of my childhood memories and, and of course my profession and everything and, and but I've I, it's hard for me to believe that other people who are like into NASCAR or into sports or whatever you might be into all of my heroes that I've had a chance to meet none of them have been disappointments they've all been incredible gentlemen uh really solid citizens people who you're just proud to admire you know uh as as human beings as well as uh, as as professionals and craftsmen i mean ask anybody that ever met joe sinnott did you ever meet joe sinnott adam no i did not it's just believe me the world is noticeably dimmer without this gentleman in it uh, he was just an amazing forget for a minute that he was an amazing penciler an amazing inker uh, just an incredible craftsman a total professional he was the sweetest kindest humanist man I've ever met in my life just an incredible human being Mm -hmm. and you just loved being around him I mean he was 
just a, a beacon of positivity and uh, it was it, it was an amazing it's an amazing thing and I could say the same thing for for Sabasema and for John Ramita senior and for you know a lot of a lot of my idols that I've had a chance to meet and get to know and even become friends with I mean they're they're good people it's they're solid citizens it's mm-hmm. it's so nice you know I'm sure that's not true of people who came later who have admired people in my generation and later because some of us are assholes <laughs> well actually I was going to say some of us take great pride in being assholes you know, on social media you know that kind of thing yeah. these guys would never have given any thought to that at all I mean it is it, it's interesting it's heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time to see some of these gentlemen react to to fan adoration because mm. you know like Sal Basema for one he he never got that while he was actually toiling in the trenches producing these books every month you know mm. he, he never the, the conventions weren't the same kind of thing they are now oh he never you know went to would go to a San Diego con and just be overwhelmed by the love of his work and his legacy and everything I mean to him it's it's always this wonderful humbling surprise as it should be you know really because it's not something you should ever take for granted especially when you're toiling in the comics world you know (laughs) it's not like becoming the Beatles or uh, you know starring in an Avengers movie it's not the same thing Uh, you know Anybody who has a real ego about what we do is silly, but uh, <laughs> but they those guys take it so far the other direction because they just were never they were never conditioned for it. I mean, there there are guys my age and younger who got into this industry quote unquote to be famous. <laughs> to those guys, that's ludicrous on the face of it. You know, you got famous maybe doing newspaper strips. You didn't get famous doing monthly comic books. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Well, it's interesting, right? Because I mean, I guess you know, for a long time, comics were, you know, kind of the the step, you know, the step, the redheaded stepchild that this industry that people Absolutely. didn't always give the right, you know, amount of uh, credit to, and so it right. doesn't. It, as you said, it's heartbreaking that some of these people would be like, "Well, why do you want to talk to me?" When it's like, how, why wouldn't we? Like, you know, a Kurt Swan or a Salpasema, these people who mm-hmm. gave so much, especially at the time when they were you know bigger and the bigger names is that the people reading them were these impre- you know younger more impressionable youth like obviously the people who read comics are different now and it's not you're not getting the you know the younger audiences that are going to grow up on these on these artists but like you know if you're growing up and Kurt Swan's your Superman artist he's always going to be your Superman artist and you're going to close your eyes and when you think of Superman you're going to see Kurt Swan and that's you can't I mean it's it's hard to put a you know how, how much that can mean to someone because again like if you look at a Kurt Swan Superman it's going to remind you of your youth it's going to remind you of growing up with your brother it's going to remind you of all these positive yeah. things that come just from looking at that one image it's really exactly. hard to put a exactly. point on that well and I you know I may have we may have spoken about this before and if I'm repeating myself I apologize but you know that's one of the things I discovered by getting involved in Facebook is that you know, I have a healthy number of Facebook followers. I post on Facebook basically to remind people I'm still alive and I'm out there. And, uh, you know, and I, I enjoy some of the conversations that we get into about the work I've done and all that. But the bottom line is nobody really cares about Ron Friends. This isn't about learning 
You know, this isn't like a Ron Fred's profile in Teen Magazine where my fans <laughs> want to know all about me. What my fans relate to are the childhood memories that I am a part of. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough that I showed up on books that they were reading at the time. I was lucky enough to be on books like Thor and like Spider-Man and, and high-profile characters. And I was there every month for some period of time and so that my work became part of their happy childhood memories. Their personal nostalgia is tied in with the work that I was producing with Tom DeFalco, you know. Um, but it's not, it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with that issue of Thor that they picked up on the way to their grandma's one time at a 7-Eleven along with an iced tea and then when they got to their grandma's they sat in the backyard under their favorite tree and read that issue. <laughs> so you become part of their I mean there's nothing better. I mean it's nothing, there's nothing better. You become part of their favorite childhood memories. Mm-hmm. And that it's just like what you're talking about. You know when people think of Thor, and they think of my version of Thor, or my version of Spider-Man, or whatever, that is something that is very humbling, because those characters meant a lot to me, and if I was able to, you know, pass some of that connection on to the next generation, then that my time on this planet has not been wasted, as far as I'm concerned, because, you know, the people that I grew up, I mean, you always love you will always connect to the kind of comics that were being created when you discovered comics mm-hmm. you know for me it's the late 60s early 70s that's my wheelhouse that's when i feel like the art form nailed it right but everybody feels that way the, the kids that are coming into it right now or the adults that are just discovering the form right now they, they're loving what they're seeing, and that's always going to be their favorite kind of comics. And they're going to look back at some of our wide-eyed, gaping-mouthed overacting, and, and they're going to hate it. They're going to look at the way Reed treated Susie in the 60s and think it was ridiculous and, and, and Cro-Magnon and, and judge it. And, you know, I, the, the, the cartooniness of some of the broad of some of what we did, whether it be action-wise or, uh, you know, uh, dramatically. They're going to look at it, they're going to see it different from what they're used to, and they're going to judge it, and and, and they're not going to like it. And, and that's the way it works. That's, that's how evolution works. Oh, for sure. I have, I have struggled sometimes because my son's almost eight, and yeah, I've been trying to obviously you know expose him to comics and uh, a lot of your work, especially. Um, actually, today, I uh, in preparation for talking to you, I, I pulled out a bunch of the uh, the Marvel Epic collections that collect your work. So I have all the Thor ones, for example, and I think there's only one of the uh, Spider-Man volumes right now in that series. And so he picked up, uh, I think it was Ghost of the Past. He's like, Daddy, what's this? And I'm like, oh, I'm talking to that artist today. And I don't think he really gets the fact that I have been lucky enough to talk to a lot of the people who work have developed the work that he's actually getting to read, which is kind of crazy. Um, and But another thing that's really been interesting as I've been exposing him to comics is... Um, he has a difficulty with the older comics because of the colors, because he sees modern coloring and really likes how you know deep in it. It just looks more vibrant to him, and it's interesting because I have a, almost the adverse effect. I 
get a real joy out of going back to the old kind of four-color comics. I find them more exciting yeah. to me, and they're more, I don't know, visceral in a way that... I, I, I like the, the, the subtler colors that we were able to get on newsprint. Yeah, in the same way. Yeah, and it's interesting that we would have such, you know, kind of different feelings on it, but it makes sense that he's, you know, seeing the more modern colors, and he's like, well, that's what I like, and I'm like, no, no, I, I like the, the classic four-color, but, you know, I also like black and white television sometimes, and <laughs> he doesn't, so it makes sense that I, I kind of like this, you know, older uh, format sure. and so when I you know I'm picking sure. up I these mean, if you're introducing him to those older stories though you know he's going to appreciate them for what they are you know, if he enjoys them he's going to appreciate them True. I mean when I read a modern comic there are some incredibly talented illustrators working today there is no doubt of that and I would never you know take pot shots at any, any craftsman who's out there making a living at it you know um, but the stories themselves are very static to me. They they don't cover as much story material. Uh, not as much happens in twenty pages or twenty two pages as what as we used to make sure that we jammed into a book. Um, they're not as action oriented. Uh, they're they're very character motivated. So mm-hmm. it is not an exaggeration to say that you might see an entire issue that it. it encompasses one conversation between two characters Mm -hmm. Um, that is not the way we would have done it back in the 80s for the simple reason that we were producing our work for a mass audience we still had spinner racks in drugstores when I started in the industry so our mandate was very similar to what the mandate is for the Marvel movies you are tasked to entertain the broadest possible audience you can. Be that age-wise, be that uh, sex, religion, national origin, whatever. You know, we were, we were always shooting for the fences. We were trying to entertain as many people as possible. We were not faced with entertaining the same 100,000 people who were coming back to comic shops every month. Mm -hmm. You know, we were still trying to entertain John Q. Public, which is the difference between the Marvel movies and the material that Marvel and DC and the major publishers produce for comics fans. Those are two completely different things, apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, and I've opined this a lot, but like I miss... Like I, I, I'm, I'm torn because I understand that they like to tell bigger, grander stories, and that you have more time to kind of sit with characters, and I get that. But there is something really nice about picking up, you know, an older issue, and you get a lot happens in one issue, and then you move on to another full adventure. And so, like, you could read, you know, six issues right. of your run with Tom, for example, on Amazing Spider-Man, and if you try, if a modern you know, creative team was doing it these days, that might be like 36 issues. Uh, that might be like three years of a book, whereas you no, guys did it... That's not an exaggeration. I, I know exactly what you mean, Adam. One of the things I was very proud of the first time we were... Uh, because we've been collected a lot over the last few years with the Epic Collections and stuff, but mm-hmm. uh, early on, when, when we were doing Amazing Spider-Girl, that was one of my first experiences with, with us, uh, with my material being collected every six issues. Uh into a trade paperback and one of the things that I was proud of is that Tom and I we knew we were going to be collected into these trade paperbacks so 
We would. Tom is a structurist. He's a he's a craftsman when it comes to his writing. So it wasn't enough to just plot six issue stories. That would have been too easy. <laughs> what he would do is every issue would have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and would thematically be separate from every other issue. But if you read them as a six issue trade paperback, there was an overarching theme that the six issues served as a beginning, a middle, and an end to. And that was something that, you know, when I read the first trade paperback collection, and of course we had moved on, that that would have been like a year or two before, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. I was very, very proud of the package because I could see that he, what he had accomplished, what we had accomplished as storytellers, and and I was very, very proud of that because every issue should be a, a, a separate unit of entertainment. If you are asking for somebody to pay you for something, you know, then your public deserves a complete unit of entertainment. I mean, I don't know about you, and I know there were fans that would never complain about such a thing, but... I was not a huge, I did not grow up a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I, I just, I just didn't. I missed the boat on that one, okay? Mm-hmm. But I did go to see the first Lord of the Rings movie. That was over two hours, and they start the quest at the end of it. <laughs> I was very put out <laughs> by that, mm-hmm. and did not come back for the other two chapters. Uh, it just, you know, obviously it didn't, it didn't hit my sweet spot. That's fine. But just as, just as product, trying to take, you know, taste away from it and everything, that left me cold, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's the issue. I mean, the, these individual, the individual floppies, as they call them, the individual monthly comics, so often, you're lucky if you even get an entire chapter of a larger ongoing arc that could last a year or two years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I see people talking mostly, I, I, well, I see it at both companies, so I, I'm not gonna single out a company, but I hear these writers talk about how, you know, they did, they did this one title where they laid the groundwork for this giant epic that then they moved to another title and they carried it on for another two years and it was gonna culminate in finally getting on this title and that was going to be the culmination of their six year saga. <laughs> we did, you know, I mean, come on, really? <laughs> That's taking a lot, a, a lot for granted. You know, that's just taken a lot for granted. I mean, even when Jack Kirby was telling his fourth world epic, each issue was an exciting adventure. Mm-hmm. And it brought you, it either brought you back or it didn't, depending on how you felt about, uh, about the work and the characters. But I know for me, it brought me back every issue. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't about, boy, I, I'm going to sit through this to see how it ends. It was about, boy, I can't wait to see what happens next. For sure, uh, and that's just—I mean, that's just about professional writing. That's just about writing to entertain a paying audience. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that just seems logical to me. If you want to keep them coming back, 
I, I don't task them with trying to figure out what the hell is going on for more than three issues. <laughs> you know, I, I, I try to entertain them and make them want to come back every issue. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it really has become a, an apples and oranges thing. And I think it comes from the fact that the industry has gotten a little, in my, in my limited, humble opinion, the industry has become a little complacent because we don't really do a lot of outreach anymore. We, we assume that, you know, if you're hired to write a comic book, you're, you're preaching to the choir. Mm-hmm. You're not facing the congregation anymore. You're facing the choir. You're facing that group of 100,000 comics fans who you know are going to be there. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing that for so long now that they're starting to die out. And, you know, what's interesting to me is that on Facebook, I see a lot of pushback against when the companies do try to reach out to a larger audience or to a diverse audience by introducing diverse, uh, more diverse characters. And, 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 uh, you know, I mean, the, the pushback from the old guard fandom is ridiculously vicious. And it's like, well, yeah, this material's not for you. You know, it's like I had somebody approach me about the Black Panther and just said, you know, I enjoyed the movie, but there was, you know, people were talking like it should be up for an Oscar, and people were, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that good. And I said, to you, it was huge for a certain demographic of this country, for a certain group of individuals of Americans. That movie meant a great deal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not every product is for you. I mean, I, I listened on another podcast. I listened to a group of 40-plus-year-old men viciously attack the latest Spider-Man and his amazing friends permutation that's on Disney+. Plus. It's got, like, a... Uh, a little big-headed Spider-Man, Peter Parker, and a Miles Morales, and a Spider-Gwen. Mm-hmm. And they're doing little shorts, computer-animated stuff. You know, it's, it's very cute. They savaged this by talking about the fact that, you know, you don't need that kind of crap. Just show kids Spider-Man, and they will react to it. You know, and all <laughs> this kind of stuff. And they were blah, 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 blah. You know, and it's like, what is the matter with you? I mean, they were using blue language. They were just ranting about this. And Adam, it just depressed the hell out of me because, you know, these are guys that are my age. And it's like, are you, are you mental? (laughs) For God's sakes, it's for kids. It's funny because I I know the exact show you're talking about. And like when I saw that and like I saw like, um, you know the the opening animation and like the song. I'm like, this is great because I think you know it, it's very kid friendly and like it's you know preschool age and like this is how you get people to like the characters. This is what you right. should be doing, yeah, right? The gentleman like, that was that was champion. The, the gentleman that runs the podcast was he's basically been championing it. He's been showing some of the shorts on his website and all this kind of stuff. And at one point, I posted and I said, "You keep right on championing this thing because it's it's wonderful." You know, it, it's it's for young, young kids. 
I mean, and do I want my kids reading, uh, certainly not the modern day stuff with Kindred and everything. I wouldn't want my kids reading that. No. Not that young, you know. But if they can buy a, a, a stuffed Spider-Man that doesn't have realistic proportions because, you know, they, they think it's cuter that he doesn't, I want that, I want that material out there. I want them to to see Spider-Man as a as a kid-friendly concept, so that as they get older, they're not afraid of him. <laughs> they're not weirded out by him. You mm-hmm. know. So I have, I have actually a question for you that kind of dovetails into this kind of topic. So I think in the last year or so, uh, Jerry Conway had put on Twitter a thought process that he thought that his his kind of generation of creators had started to harm the industry by making everyone age out and that you started to make you know more mature stories and so initially when you had the the idea was that you had this regular kind of influx of people reading comics when they were a certain age and then they would kind of age out but then you'd have a new crop kind of growing in now you had comics kind of growing up with those readers but kind of starting to leave the younger leader readers out in the cold I mean, he and he kind of basically said that he kind of felt bad and that it was partly his fault for things that he'd done to, you know, Gwen Stacy, for example, and kind of aging the character out. How do you feel about something like that? Do you think that's possibly true? I, I, think or? I, I don't think Jerry deserves to take a bullet for that, <laughs> uh, specifically because, you know, his work was some of the work that I was really enjoying when I was 11 and 12 years old. You know, mm-hmm. um, it was a lot of the work that fueled my furnace. <laughs> what made me want to do this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but there's also something there that he's missing, which is not just the creative end of it, but Adam, look how much a comic book costs these days. Oh, I know. It's even worse when in Canada started, because. When you and I started reading <laughs> comics, I started reading comics when they were 12 cents a piece. If I would have tried to start reading comics these days and told my dad, uh, I cut the grass and I took it to garbage and (laughs) I did my chores, um, and my dad used to pay for our comics for my brother and I. He'd take us around to three different locations, a Sun Drug, a National Record Mart, and a newsstand. He would take us there to buy our comics every week, right? Mm -hmm. This This was his dutiful dad thing that he did rather than give us like a regular allowance he would pay for our comics and and we would and we would help out around the house um can you imagine a dad doing that these days with the amount of product that's out there at six bucks a pop or five bucks a pop or whatever the hell it is these days it's nuts. It's a lot harder, that's for sure. I mean, and I'm in Canada, so we have, like, obviously, we have to convert to our dollar as well. So it's adding an extra, like, 20 30% on top of what, you know, the cover is. So it's definitely hard. And that's why I, I maybe why I obsess about this idea, this this halcyon day of being able to get a full story or feel like you really got a full right. thing. Like, I've been buying for, since they, IDW got the license a few years ago for a Sonic the Hedgehog comics. And my son, like Sonic the Hedgehog, played some of the, the, the video games. So I started getting that for him and that's been a lot of fun for him because they have complete stories like they have you know a full issue they have a full 
world adventure and then usually it might be part of a larger arc and there's kind of a you know other things going on but they have a full adventure sometimes there's subplots still which i love subplots and so at least there i can feel like well i'm getting my money's worth because you know he's getting a full adventure he's not just as you said getting chapter one and not really understanding what's going to happen next because they didn't move the plot along so i do appreciate places like idw and boom where you know they're still focusing on having full stories and not necessarily writing for the trade exactly and yeah that's one of the things i was going to bring up now when i was a kid you know books trade paperbacks were things like stan lee's uh, uh, bring on the bad guys and the superhero women and uh, the origins of Marvel Comics. You know, those were those were trade paperbacks that were being published back then uh, that reprinted origin stories and, and had, you know, little chapter breaks by Stan and all this kind of stuff. For me, those were like birthday and Christmas presents. <laughs> those weren't things that I just expected my folks to pony up the money for. Oh, for sure. You know, so... <laughs> Even having you know having kids now, and and expecting them to survive on trade paperbacks, uh, the trade paperbacks are you know that much more of, of a of a dollar drain. So I don't know whether they even out at all, you know. But I don't think I would have gotten into comics. <laughs> you know, my my folks did okay. I mean, we were you know we were solid middle class citizens growing up. But, you know, if comic books, I, you know, I aged up with comics. They went from 12 cents to 15 cents to 25 cents, back to 15 cents for a while. They were 20 cents for a while. Mm-hmm. But, you know, by the time they broke into the dollar, 60 cents and a dollar and everything, I was an adult professional working in the industry. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think as a kid today, growing up the way I grew up in the in the relative economic position that I would have had parents that would have been willing to spring for comic books. And and so, but because of that, the whole point of me bringing this up is that's why the material has aged with the readership because only that, that's the only demographic that can afford these damn things. Mm, It's true. You have to tell stories for 40- and 50-year-olds because they're the only ones who can afford this stuff. <laughs> so I, I, it's interesting because this this is actually kind of a natural point to talk about, obviously, your next big book that's coming out on August 4th because it's a 68-page giant book, even though it's, you know, it's, you know, what, is it six ninety nine or something? But that's a lot of content. Four ninety nine. The first issue is going to be, uh, I believe, is four ninety nine with that kind of page count. Because Darren is finally, Darren Henry, the publisher, is finally taking on the, the idea that that single unit of entertainment issue must be addressed mm-hmm. if we are to survive as a viable publishing form. You know, that somebody has to uh, address the content issue. Um, and he is he's doing that in a very direct way he is uh, he is doing this uh, by even calling the the publishing venture binge books mm-hmm. um, you know he's, he's looking at television and the different platforms now where people binge series and he's saying what he's giving you is three issues worth of content every issue 
So you are getting that beginning, middle, and end of a story. There will be continuing subplots from issue to issue. He is universe building in a fairly traditional way, like a lot of publishers do, but he's doing it very organically. He's, he's come the closest that I've seen to organically growing his little universe like Marvel did early on, mm-hmm. right? He's not hitting you over the head with, come join my new universe, <laughs> and you have to learn all of this up front or you're gonna be lost. <laughs> that kind of thing. He's been publishing, he's been treating these as, you know, launching these, you know, he's been test marketing them for the last few years, and they will now all be available uh, through Diamond uh, over the next several months. There will be launches through through Diamond distribution of all the different titles. We're leading it off with the Heroes Union number one, which is you know his his premier super team, and it's a wonderful story co-plotted by Darren and Roger Stern and scripted by Roger Stern and penciled by me and inked by Sal Basema and a a young indie anchor named uh, Chris Nye who is doing some wonderful Silver Age flavored work, you know. Darren has managed, Darren is a child of the 70s. He grew up on 70s Marvel. Mm -hmm. And he has managed to take advantage of all of these expatriate illustrators and and writers and everything who are still out there, who are still vital and are still interested in working and and tasking them to do the kind of work that for the most part we enjoy. I mean, I'm very blessed to have found Darren um, he actually originally approached Sal Basema to pencil and ink and develop these characters with him. Um, and at that point, Sal and I were working together on Spider-Girl, and Sal had pretty much retired from dealing with the blank page and, and doing a lot of storytelling, you know, that kind of thing. But he spoke up and said to Darren, if you want to pay this run, friends guy, <laughs> I'll stick around and ink it, you know. So uh, that's what we did. And that became the core of our group. We have a very uh, talented uh, letterer production guy uh, whose name is Marshall Dillon, believe it or not. Oh, really? And uh, <laughs> Glenn Whitmore, who was the colorist on all the 90s Superman titles back when they were the must-reads of the, of the newsstand, is our colorist. And uh, it's been great, great fun. And if you're a fan of that, if you're a fan of all ages comics content with superheroes who are flawed and human, but heroes, um, and you're a fan of Roger Stern's work or, 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 or a fan of mine or a fan of Glenn's or, you know, check it out. It'll be on, it'll be on sale August 4th. I believe the date for pre-orders has passed through Diamond, but possibly not if you have a connection at your local comic shop. Mm-hmm. But um, all I ask is that you check it out because, again, for four ninety nine, you get the uh, three issues worth of content, a nice epic uh, science fiction story by Roger Stern with a, uh, the, one, the one thing that Darren is supplying is he does very traditional superheroes, but there's always some twist on the trope. There's always some little <laughs> tweak on the trope that's very modern, 
Uh, his voice as a writer is very modern, and the the characters, the the uh, the genesis of the characters is very modern, and and there's always some little twist. The the, the twist to this universe-threatening menace is really interesting to me, uh, and and opens up levels of discussion that I'm very eager to have with people once they've read it, you know. <laughs> uh, so I'm really happy that it's that, that this material is finally going to be getting out through uh, through Diamond Distribution in front of as many people as will have. Uh, it has been it had been available through, as I said, some test marketing in certain comic shops here in Pennsylvania and, and elsewhere, and um, and through Comixology. But I believe, and I could be wrong about this, I haven't double-checked it with Darren, but I believe I saw an announcement from Darren that a lot of it was going to be removed from Comixology as mm. far as new download okay. um, in favor of distribution through Diamond. Uh, for for the foreseeable future, mm-hmm. so uh, and if you have downloaded this material, it will stay there for you. Nobody's taking it from you. <laughs> but uh, as far as for new downloads, I, I don't believe it's going to be as it's going to be available uh, continuing mm-hmm. on. But um, it's fun stuff. I mean, he's he's working with. Well, let's see. There's me. There's Craig Rousseau, who worked on Batman Adventures and has done other work in the comics industry. Mm-hmm. There's a gentleman named Stephen E. Gordon, who has worked in animation, uh, probably most notably uh, X-Men Evolution, if you remember that cartoon. He oh, worked yeah. on character design for that cartoon and uh, has worked in animation and does really, really nice stuff. I, he's one of my favorites. Um, and who else? Uh we have a, uh, you know, there's, there's going to be books, titles coming out that are humor-oriented, that are, uh, there, there's a, a horror anthology that will be coming out as part of this, uh, part of these, uh, these books. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing. There, you know, there's, there's one book that's done in the style of, of uh, an Archie comic that, that deals with uh, vampires in the modern day. Uh, called Super Suckers, and it uh, it's being done by a gentleman who worked for RG Comics for years and years and years. You know, so uh, it's it's he's for real. Darren is for real. This isn't just a pipe dream. He's made a lot of very smart decisions, and uh, you know, I, I'm hoping that it it connects with an audience, that it finds its audience, because uh, the the work is there. The work is there. I think I was I was listening to one of the. Uh, I mean, as I mentioned, you've kind of been doing the podcast circuit lately, so uh, it's nice to be able to listen to your stories because uh, I always enjoy listening to you talk. I mean, that's why I like having you on so many times, but uh, also hearing you talk elsewhere. And one of the things I thought was interesting was that you were talking about kind of this is one of the first times. Maybe I'm misquoting you, but uh, one of the first times where you're working on something with Roger and it, you were able to be a little bit more involved, I guess, on the plot than you know some of the projects were before where you kind of got the plot and then you kind of went off and did your thing and this was a little bit different from a collaboration perspective is that an accurate well, read? actually you you are misquoting me okay because uh you you got the gist of it but the issue is this is one more project working with roger where i didn't really i still have yet to build a project from uh, the ground up with roger okay um 
with Roger, it's always a pleasure to work with him because you're always working on a terrific story. You know, I mean, the, the guy is, um, I mean, I, my highest praise is he's right up there with Tom DeFalco as far as uh, a, uh, a technical writer, uh, somebody who knows the craft incredibly well. And almost every project, almost every high-profile project that I've done with Roger has been something that could easily have gone to somebody else. Hmm. I wasn't in on the ground floor. The kid who collects Spider-Man easily could have gone to John Romita Jr. Uh, the uh, Hobgoblin Lives miniseries was offered to John Romita Jr. first. Hmm. He was unable to do it. Um, you know, so I've when I you, the other times I've worked with Roger, it's almost always been a situation where the plot was accepted by the writer, by the editors, and and I sent the plot and and you know I've had conversations with Roger. I consider Roger a friend. I hope he feels the same way. He's a great guy, but we've never actually developed anything from the ground up together. Okay. And it would be fun to do someday. Who knows? But. Um, this was not necessarily that. This was another example of he worked with Darren and they crafted the plot and he scripted it and it was a joy. Uh, I mean, even working on the plot was a joy because, you know, Darren is is a TV writer. He is, his, his background is writing television. And when he first started writing for comics, he, TV writing is, <laughs> it's about as, it's it's exactly the same as full script writing in comics. Mm. You know, you're you're suggesting direction, you're talking exact dialogue, you're you're talking pacing, you know, the whole bit. And when we first, after we had developed the characters, and actually we had designed a lot of the characters, he sent me an attempt at a plot. He plotted the the first half of the first issue. Right? Okay. And I sat and I thumbnailed off of his plot. But when he saw the pictures, he had no idea what to do with it. <laughs> his, his brain short-circuited because I was making choices based on his plot that he was not prepared for. And he had just never worked that way before, right? He said, "Is it? can we back off a little bit? Can I get a little more detailed? I said, you do whatever you need to do. I'm not really crazy about full script, but you do whatever you need to do to get comfortable with this, Darren. It's your project, you mm -hmm. know, that kind of thing. And usually Darren's plots would break down almost panel to panel. They flowed really well, but if you broke it down by page and then you would break it down the way he would put it in paragraphs, he was actually thinking panel to panel. And if I didn't stray too far, I mean, if I needed, if, if, I, if I decided it was a better idea to combine two panels worth of action in one panel, he didn't have a problem with that. If I decided I needed to, you know, take one panel's action and make it two panels, he didn't have a problem with that. So we worked fine together. But I, I will admit, when he plotted with Roger Stern and I got a Roger Stern plot, it was like, being back in harness with Marvel, you know, it was like, ah, oh, now we're all talking the same language, and and it it made me feel, a, you know, only slightly freer than I do working with Darren, and I had a great time working on Heroes Union, and uh, and then Roger came in and did his usual fantastic job of uh, 
of scripting it, and he did a wonderful job uh, learning the voices of the characters from the material that uh, Darren had already done, and uh, it was just a wonderful experience. Uh, you know, Glenn colored it, Marshall Dillon lettered it, and it looks terrific. I mean, it's a terrific package, and I'm, I'm very very frankly proud to be a part of it and very 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 eager to get it in front of the public so mm. and it's a square bound book too right i that's what i understand yes he actually has decided to kind of go square bound with it to, to make it more of an evergreen product for retailers mm. something that you can keep on your shelf and uh, you won't feel obligated to toss it into a back issue bin mm-hmm. uh, so yes it, uh, they, they will be square bound uh, coming through diamond yeah very cool so I have I, have, I know I you know, don't want to take up too much of your evening so I have three quick questions before I come up with more um, the, okay. the, the, the first one's a bit of a is a, is a hypothetical and it just because you you were talking about both these gentlemen so if you had a had a, a, a an imaginary room just imagine this room and you have two chairs in this room and you have two whiteboards and in the middle of the room um, you know you have maybe a list of some characters and some ideas of you know different character connections and you had Roger Stern sitting on one side of the room and Tom DeFalco on the other and they both are ready to write on their uh, on these bo- on these boards uh, ideas for story ideas who do you think would run out of ideas first I, I don't think either one of them I, I, I think you would we, we'd both grow long white beards uh, before either before either one we are idea machines and working with DeFalco all, all these years it's we where it's like just tell us what you want tell us the page count no tell us what you're interested in and we will meet those parameters that's what you're paying us to do you know so when 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 an editor approaches tom and says do you have any ideas for captain america he'll say not at the moment when do you need it <laughs> if they say Monday, you'll say, I will have you five ideas by Monday. You know, that that's the kind of creative that he has always been. And Roger is very much the same way. Mm. You know, we don't all just walk around with, you know, our little file of disgruntled ideas. We were, <laughs> we were never able to, to get in front of anybody. Uh, you know, they'll all be fresh ideas based on what's going on in the world today uh, and you know sometimes they're based on something we didn't get around to when we did that 10 page Thunderstrike story a while back for for the Thor the Worthy one shot right mm-hmm. they contacted us about doing a Thunderstrike story and we said uh, the 616 Kevin Thunderstrike or Eric and they said no we'd, we'd really like it to be Eric now we didn't have enough page count to bring Eric back or anything like that, so we decided to tell an untold incident in Eric's life. Tom pretty much knew where he wanted to place it because we had that moment of of trauma, of PTSD for all of the characters when uh, the one member of Code Blue had been killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, when. Uh, Jock Jackson had been killed, and so he wanted to place it in that moment of of crisis. Because as a father, Eric, that was a moment for Eric where he realized 
people die doing this, <laughs> you know? And he decided he wanted to tell a story about that moment where, you know, he could have quit at that moment. He could, he, Eric could have walked away at that point. So why didn't he? And if he had, of course, his his whole existence would have changed. You know, mm-hmm. he would have been there for his son. You know, everything, because ultimately the character did perish heroically himself. So we, we thought it would be interesting. Now, Tom was at that point. Tom was contemplating the possibility of doing ten pages of a conversation between Thunderstrike and. Uh, Lieutenant uh, Marcus Stone from Code Blue. Mm-hmm. He was his brain was starting to conceive and uh, a two uh, you know a, a two character dialogue uh, play uh, of them in an office you know that kind of thing and it was one of the few times that I reminded Tom that we're doing comics and <laughs> I reminded him of everything he taught me. And, and said, no, <laughs> they're going to have this conversation on the field of battle. We need an antagonist. We need somebody to, you know, get the action going, and we need a moment of crisis for Eric to make his realizations. And Tom said, you know, of course you're right. Of course you're right. So, so <laughs> who do we got? Who do you, you want to do? And now I always had a story in my back pocket that I wanted to do for Code Blue where they took on the Great Gargoyle. So that became the, you know, okay, we're going to do the Great Gargoyle. We're going to tell this kind of story. But it, but it started out as this character piece for Eric. And it stayed a character piece for Eric. And uh, so we came came up with this 10-page story where they take on the Great Gargoyle. Eric has this moment of crisis and realizes that what he is doing is actually saving lives and he's not going to stop doing that because he gets scared every once in a while and he makes the choice. And ironically, it ends on a very upbeat note. And I say ironically because for the people that know the character... (laughs) Eric didn't make it out alive, you know, that kind of thing. But, but that's a little insight into, you know, how we just start spitballing and we come up with ideas and we, and we develop ideas, you know. Um, when we did the 10-page Spider-Man, uh, if that started with Tom wanting to address the whole axiom of with great power must also come great responsibility. And, and he just, he, he asked the question, what if you don't have great power? What if, what if, if we do something with a character who, you know, did the right thing and it still went south? Mm-hmm. And that's where that 10-page story came from. I mean, what surprised me, and I don't want to give, I don't want to give, give this one reader too much voice because I don't agree with his assessment at all, but we told this very personal story to Peter Parker because, you know, we even were a little ham-fisted about it. And the, the young kid who he meets is named Pete. And he is faced with a decision about whether or not to 
break the law or not break the law. He chooses not to break the law, and, and it still goes south, and his, his uncle is killed. Now, the parallels were all very deliberate, and they're all there for Peter Parker to respond to, and it, I was very affected by the story. I was very, very proud of the story. I was very affected by the story. One of the people on, on Facebook posted, they were very disappointed in our 10-page story because they were hoping for something new and not just a rehash of Spider-Man's origin. <laughs> and you can't control that, you know? You, you, you can't control what, how somebody experiences your work or how they respond to it. You just, you just can't, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. um, I've even had people who are professed fans of my, my work who, it was when we did um, the Spider-Girl serial in the back of Spider-Girl Island. Oh, yeah. And I think we started out with like 11 pages, but then they went to like five-page installments for the for the balance of it uh, for, for another, what was it, I guess, five issues or something? Because I, I think ultimately it was like a 30-page story. Something like that, and yeah. And as they were reviewing it on a podcast, they weren't making any of the character connections, any of the thematic connections that were there because they just assumed in five-page installments they weren't there. And it was very frustrating for me to, to listen to because I didn't have the ability to, to go, excuse me, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not the case, you know, because there were, a, I mean, it's Tom DeFalco. I mean, so... It, you know, it behooves you if you're reading a Tom DeFalco story to presuppose that all that stuff's going to be in there. All that good stuff's going to be in there. You just got to you got to pay attention. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and I thought there was some wonderful uh, character stuff in there. There was some wonderful uh, May. You know, was we were dealing with what May Day was dealing with. The antagonist in that story was processing the same tragedy that Mayday was, but in a completely different way, in a far more destructive way. So the parallel was there between the protagonist and the antagonist. And then we had a third character that was being faced with the same loss, and Mayday was able to help her avoid that. So that began the process of her healing, along with, with seeing the, anta the antagonist's uh, reaction to the same type of trauma being so destructive, you know, and I, I thought it was a beautifully plotted story by DeFalco. And again, I was very proud to be a part of it. And I thought we, <laughs> I thought we served it as well as we could. And sometimes you just can't control what somebody's going to take from the meal you're serving them. You know, mm -hmm. it just, uh, it's one of the frustrations of, of working in a, in a creative uh, endeavor. You know, it just is. For sure. You know, it's like the, the, the artists who do what they do and, you know, do impressionistic painting and one per person can look at it and see every sunset they've ever enjoyed in their life and somebody else can look at it and go, it's a white dot on red. <laughs> you know, and it's, there it is. You know, unfortunately, that white dot on red is painted in somebody's blood and guts, man. <laughs> it's like, please, give us something, you know, that kind of thing. So. Absolutely. 
So let me ask. Um, this is, well, this is less of a, an ask, and this is actually just more of a, a thank you to you. Is that uh, last year? So after we had done our podcast on talking about Hobgoblin Lives. Uh, and all your great work on that book, uh, you were able to connect me with Roger Stern, who ended up coming on the show for two different interviews. So I cannot thank you enough um, for connecting me with Roger last year. Um, It was a tremendous experience being able to talk with him about his work. Being able to do it twice was actually uh, even more incredible that I was able to talk with him twice. So that would not have happened if it wasn't for you. So I just wanted to say publicly thank you so much for making that happen and making the connection last year because I really appreciated it. Well, that, you're never going to get less than a than a triple A rating from me, Adam. I, I've I've enjoyed our conversations, and uh, you know there are uh, there are definitely there's you and several other people out there. Dan Gavazdan's one of them that we spoke about earlier that deserve not to be caught in the crunch <laughs> of all the other people doing podcasts out there. And I am more than willing, when I've had a positive experience, I'm more than willing to tell other creatives that, you know, these are sharp people who know the material and uh, you, you can have a really insightful conversation. They can lead you into a really insightful conversation. I'm glad it happened. I'm going to have to look those up and listen to them. They were because uh, uh, I've always enjoyed I've always enjoyed speaking with uh, Roger about the craft, so I, I look forward to listening to those. They they were major highlights for me because I mean he he's one of those you know he's one of those creators who you know he's done so much work that I grew up on and that I was reading and have always enjoyed. So being able it, it's so fascinating to me, and you know it, the comic book industry is, is I guess small enough and it's almost sad in some ways, but the level of access that people can have with creators um, compared to any other industry is really fascinating. Um, and that I, I, th- I don't know if, if comic book fans really take stock enough of in that that we are able to meet these people and talk to people and engage on you know on different social medias etc or even going to conventions and actually see people whereas you know I will never meet Robert Downey Jr. I will never talk to Robert Downey Jr. Uh, but I can talk to all these people who've had a huge impact on my life who've written all these comics or illustrated these comics and so that level of access has always been so fascinating even though to me you guys are rock stars like the fact that well, I can. And- even talk to you guys it still blows my mind (laughs) and even with social media a lot of people are still surprised when they're part of some Facebook group and you know when you log on when you make a comment or something and they're going wait wait a minute are you you the Ron Friends that did spy no I'm the other Ron Friends (laughs) believe me there's no other Ron Friends walking around on Facebook um and if you want to talk to RDJ just let me know I'll I'll give him a phone call just like I did Roger we'll We'll make it happen because you know I'm I'm out at his place all the time. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> but but no, Chris Evans and I really are. You know, we're we're hug buddies though, and uh, and of course, you know, Hemsworth didn't even take the job until he talked to me first. So. Oh, man. But anyway, no, it was my pleasure. I'm glad that it worked out the way it did, and I, Roger doesn't come out near enough from his little hobbit hole to uh, <laughs> to impart his wisdom on people. I wish he would do it more. You know, mm-hmm. I, I really do. I, you know, but he's he's not real high tech uh, and he's far more likely to only do a phone interview or answer questions via email, you know, that kind of thing. For and sure. I, I, that's a shame because I, Roger not only is a terrific writer, but he was uh, a very 
productive editor. I mean, he was he was the editor for a lot of your favorite stuff too, probably mm-hmm. on sure. different books. You know, so uh, yeah. I mean, I, I I think he has a lot of wisdom to impart about the industry, and and quite frankly, you know, given my point of view, how things should be done and maybe <laughs> aren't anymore. You know. Um, I mean, when it, when it came when it came to Roger, like if if I, if the only way to communicate with him had been smoke signals, I would have figured out a way. Like that's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, right now I have a gentleman who is really interested in speaking with Sal Basema, and I've been telling him, I your best bet is a phone call, but you know I'm not going to give you his phone number without permission. Mm-hmm. You know that kind of thing. Because Sal, he's, he, he has an iPad, but you know we, we've tried a couple of times to get him hooked up on Zoom calls or StreamYard, and it has not worked. We've you know connected with him by phone a few times, and he's you know of course has done print interviews and things. But but uh, you know I said plus the fact he's not the type of gentleman if you've ever read his the book uh, on his work where there's an extensive interview with him. He doesn't remember specific hmm. pieces or characters or runs or anything. He remembers the people he worked with. He remembers, you know, he knows the craft inside and out. He, he, he can tell you about his own influences and his own experiences, but he is not equipped. He doesn't have a fan's memory of all the work he's done, much like his brother John. I, I, at one point I read a, an interview with Roy Thomas Roy Thomas wanted to do an interview with John about their run on their early run on the Avengers together, and he must have sent as as preparation. He must have sent John a, a giant packet of Xeroxes and everything. And you know, and, and even with that, you know, uh, Roy Thomas was saying, John, you remember, of course, you designed the original Grim Reaper costume, and he went. I'll take your word for it, Roy. I'm looking at it now. I don't remember a thing about it, you know. And and Sal's very much the same way. At one point, very early on in my association with Sal, I guess working on Spider Girl, um, he was doing some kind of a, a podcast or radio thing or something. It was some kind of an audio interview, and I was supposed to phone in too. I was supposed to be a part of it, and I completely flaked. It wasn't primarily about me, it was about Sal, but I had agreed to be on it, and I completely flaked. I was at the studio working, and I just completely forgot. And when I finally remembered, I called Sal, and I apologized all over the place. And and, and he, one of the things he said was, yeah, I wish it would have been there, Ron, because this one guy just kept, he wouldn't take... I don't remember for an answer because he wanted to talk about this one cover that I did for a Marvel 2-in-1 oh that had Captain America and the Guardians of the Galaxy. I said, you didn't do that cover. John did that cover, inked by Esposito. And he went, see? See? <laughs> you could have ended that conversation for me. I said, yeah, and I think Ramita touched up the cap figure and everything. He went, oh, just stop. Stop it. But the point was, I kept telling him, I don't remember that. I can't, you because know, he did the interiors to it. Mm. But he, you know, the one guy just wanted to talk about how much this cover meant to him. And Sal, he wouldn't take, I don't remember for an answer. He thought, like, somehow he was going to remind Sal of this cover. And do you know how many covers Sal Basema has drawn in his life? <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't even do that one. Come on, guys. That's funny. Uh, anyway, 
I'm sure it was laid out by somebody else. I mean, a lot of these things, a lot of these guys, especially early on, they were doing covers based on Marie Severin sketches out of the office mm -hmm. and, you know, making tweaks. And then there were, there were production changes and all this kind of stuff. So it's, you know, it was a very different industry than it is now. Uh, and, and they weren't necessarily fans of comic books. I mean, they had... Uh, they had they were fans of certain uh, of certain uh, illustrators and everything and would look at their artwork and talk about it and mm -hmm. and admire uh, different illustrators uh, of, the, of the of the day but you know they, they weren't comic fans the way Roy Thomas was a Marvel fan by the time he started working for Marvel you mm -hmm. just didn't have that back then you know and uh, so it, it's a, it is it's a, a different environment for those guys as well, you know. Mm -hmm. So my my next question is I, I don't not necessarily one that you may have an answer for, but I, I've I've started asking it from everyone who's kind of worked at Marvel in the kind of eighties and nineties period in case they had interactions with this person. So you may not have had a lot of interactions, so that's okay. Um, do you have any memories or particular fun stories of Mark Grunewald? Uh, only of deep respect and affection. Um, I never got to know Mark well. Um, I wish I had, because he was very good friends with Tom DeFalco. So I could not help but be influenced by Tom DeFalco's opinions of mm -hmm. Mark Woodwald. But anytime you were around Mark, he made you feel like an old friend. And the one thing that I, the fun stories that I remember about Mark were, at that point, when we would do conventions, Marvel had a budget. Oftentimes, Marvel was paying to send you to these conventions. And I was lucky enough a few times when I was doing high-profile titles and everything that I would agree to do conventions. And I, either my way would be paid by the convention or by Marvel. But once everybody was there, Mark would act as kind of camp counselor and there would be presentations where all the Marvel guys would get together and sometimes we would do like spoofs of game shows <laughs> and other times we would do what, Mar what, what Mark called the Marvel Olympics where we would make complete idiots of ourselves uh, playing you know parlor games with people from the audience and it was great great fun I, I remember setting up chairs on a tier, and we kind of did a Marvel version of Hollywood Squares, <laughs> you know, where you would have two contestants, and they would ask questions about comics and things like that. Um, the Marvel Olympics were ridiculous things. I, I remember at one point having to get under chairs and kind of wriggle my way under chairs, uh, and my pants came down, uh, you know, things, <laughs> things like that. That, uh, you know, it was all in good fun, and it was wonderful camaraderie with the other people from Marvel, and, and Mark was the ringleader for that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, and I can remember times coming into the office and, and being invited into to, to Mark's office to watch things on video, you know, things like that, and uh, because I was friends with Tom, yeah, I was okay by him, you know? I mean, it was a, he, he was a good man, and... In my last uh, days at Marvel, as Thunderstrike was wrapping up, uh, the, all the Ron Perlman shit was happening. Mm -hmm. Thunderstrike was canceled because of all the Ron Perlman shit. And 
I was in touch, Mark was the guy I was in touch with because I was under contract at that point. And it was a matter of, you know, Marvel contracts are only as good as the work Marvel is able to provide you and you are responsible for finding the work and the work was not there. Um, and Mark, like he was doing with a lot of people at that time, was staying in touch with me and at one point he had to call me and he said, Ron, I'm really sorry, I have not been able to find anything that will enable you to keep your contract current. And I was, a I was able to tell him, Mark, thank you. I can't thank you enough because given the opportunity, I would stay a Marvel guy. But I have been made an offer, ironically, from Mike Carlin over at DC, who used to be Mark Grunewald's assistant editor. They were a real... <laughs> They were an amazing pair, apparently, at Marvel when they worked together of mm -hmm. uh, practical jokers, and uh, they kept a, they kept a very fun atmosphere. So I was able to tell him that, that uh, Mike Carlin has called. He's offered me a gig on Superman, so I have somewhere to land. So you've got more than enough on your plate to worry about. You don't have to worry about me. Uh, and, and again, I, you know, I didn't feel like Mark and I were, were, were close personal friends. He was doing it because he knew I was a Marvel guy. Mm -hmm. And I will always, always love that man for the blood, sweat, and tears that he put into that job, the fun he had at that job, but he also, he paid for those terrible, terrible days. I quite possibly with his life because mm -hmm. His wife has come forward and said that he was keeping a journal at the time, and there was that terrible period of time where, like, every journal entry was, I had to fire so-and-so today. I had to tell so-and-so that there was no work today. You know, that kind of thing. And it was just a very, very bad time for Marvel, and Mark shouldered a lot of that. And it would not be a stretch to say that that kind of stress might have contributed to his passing. Mm -hmm. So... I can't say enough about Mark Rufold. I just, he was the beating heart of the Marvel Universe, of not the continuity, but the consistency of the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. And when we lost Mark, we lost a huge amount of the charm and the warmth and the heart of what was the Marvel Universe up to that point. And I don't think we've ever really recovered from it. No. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously he passed so long ago and, you know, I was too young to know anything about him, but, you know, everything I've ever read about him and, you know, hearing stories from people like yourself or like Tom, etc., uh, it's really interesting to kind of paint this picture of, as you said, like this beating heart of Marvel that, you know, when that went away, that something was lost at Marvel. Uh, and I do feel like, you know, when we talk about people who work at Marvel now, the person who feels like the most kind of holdover or trying to uh, have kind of the, the Mark Grunewald flame, if anyone, would be Tom Brevoort. Uh, he seems to... He's the last man standing uh, as far as people I've worked with and people that were that were involved when, when as I was coming up. I mean, I did work for Tom. Uh, well, he was our editor on uh, Spider-Girl for a while. That's he right. Was, uh, he was an executive editor. But I worked with him when he was in charge of special projects. So anytime you were doing posters or or trading cards or, or 
you know, uh, licensed work for Marvel, which I did my fair share of, uh, you were working with Tom, you know. So I I knew Tom and uh, worked with him quite often, and uh, I've always been a, a fan of his uh, of his work and his writing. But uh, you know, but it, it, unfortunately, we had you know we like has happened to so many people in this industry. At one point, I wasn't working for Marvel or DC, but I was okay. I was I was able to put together you know freelance, and I was I was doing all right. I've I've never really been. I've had some low points, but never so low that I couldn't dig my way out with the help of some friends, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And I was invited to a show, and I was at a convention that Tom was at, and I felt so bad for him in retrospect. All I wanted to do was go over and say hi and shake his hand and, and see how he was doing and maybe talk about the old times, right? Mm -hmm. And he was so uncomfortable because he was, af I think he was afraid I was going to hit him up for work. Because mm. so many editors are, especially at conventions, mm. and especially by freelancers who aren't currently doing anything regular for the company, you know. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I, I stupidly didn't realize that that might happen. So I, I was standing there just kind of trying to make small talk and trying to get him to talk to me and he was incredibly reserved to the point of almost catatonic. And I wonder, I said, does he not remember who I am? Does he not? And I, I well, it can't be that. And it wasn't until I talked to DeFalco about it that it kind of, I realized, oh, that poor bastard. You know, he just, he was waiting for me to drop the other shoe. So he really wasn't hearing anything I was saying. Hmm. Uh, you know, and I, I feel terrible that I put him in that position because I like, I read his blog now. I enjoy reading his blog and he occasionally posts on my Facebook page and things like that. And, uh, I mean, I have nothing but, but fond memories of working with Tom. I, I have always enjoyed his, uh, you know, his work and his company and his, his editorial input. I mean, I always have. So it, it really, you know, it, it, bothers me to this day you might be able to tell it bothers me to this day that i put that poor guy in that situation and then <laughs> he and then it went the way it did because i mean i i didn't get it at the time and uh, you know maybe we need to lead with i'm fine i'm not going to ask you for work how are things <laughs> you know that kind of thing maybe we maybe we need to do that i don't know like but, a like a know. disclaimer yeah exactly like some some kind of disclaimer where you can unclench because I am not, at no point in this conversation am I going to expect anything from you. So, you know, it's something. But, um, you know, maybe maybe we just need to wear T-shirts around conventions and say, gainfully employed, relax, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. All right, I have, uh, I have a final question for you before I'll let you okay. go because we're almost at the two-hour mark now, and I'm, as always, very grateful for all the time that you spend with me. Um, so the last question, which might be a bit of a doozy, so I apologize in advance. Um, we haven't. Okay. I feel like in the last few conversations, we've always kind of briefly touched on Superman. We haven't done a lot of Superman kind of conversations. So my one question would be. Because whenever we've talked about your work on Spider-Man or Thor, you've talked about how 
you know, as preparation for those projects, you went back and kind of looked at the Dicko or you looked at the Ramita or, you know, with, you looked at the Kirby for Thor. Um, but we haven't really yeah. talked about when you took on Superman, what were those kind of visual inspirations and references that you were kind of looking at before you jumped into that kind of project? I actually, strangely enough, I, I didn't have to do the, the kind of work that I've done before, but I, my, my intent stayed the same, which was going back to the Siegel and, Sch- and Schuster stuff <laughs> and seeing what I could do to make my Superman the same guy that Joe Schuster was drawing. But I had an ally in that because John Bogdanoff was already doing that on the other title. Mm. So I didn't have to work as hard to find that, you know, that sh- those Schusterisms that I wanted to make a part of the Superman character that I wanted to maintain. Um, I- I'll tell you one of the things I did when, when I got Superman, because Superman, you know, that went back to my the core of my childhood, you know, the 66 filmation cartoon mm-hmm. and starting out with Superman. And as we spoke about earlier, you know, world's finest in action comics and Kurt Swan and the whole bit, Al Plastino. Um, but two of the things I did is I had found an old, uh, we had a Superman poster from the seventies by, um, by, uh, Strew, uh, Drew, uh, Zan, who, who did all the, Indiana Jones posters and everything. Oh, yeah. He just signs Drew, D-T-R-E-W. He did a series of, of superhero posters in the, in the 70s. And so he did this beautiful painting of Superman uh, standing there with his cape over his one shoulder and everything. It's just gorgeous. You can find it on the Internet. And then they put like a little bad tracing of a Kurt Swan panel in along the bottom and was very graphic, but it was it was gorgeous, and we had it. As, I had it as a kid, and I still had it. I had it under my bed somewhere, so I dug that out, and I found a couple of photographs of my brother and I in our Superman play suits when we were like five and eight years old, you know, or six and nine, or something like that, in our Superman play suits, and those are the kind of things that I started pinning up around my desk. Mm. to get myself back into Superman mode. And I will not lie, I, I, I had a book called Superman from Serial to Serial that had a lot of nice still photographs of George Reeves. And, and along with this Schuster, the Schusterisms, I, I was always trying to get a little George Reeves into my Superman. Hmm. Um, and the really, the only way I think I really succeeded in getting some Superman in there was Clark Kent always wore double-breasted suits when I drew him, hmm. and would even occasionally wear a hat. But uh, and and I wasn't the only one that was that was doing that kind of stuff. I mean, Bogdanov's influences were, you know, went as far back as the Fleischer cartoons, you know, the serial cartoons and. And, and George Reeves and Kirk Allen and things like that. So, I mean, we, we were, you know, a lot of us were working at trying to keep the, the real root of Superman alive and, and, and vital in what we were doing. So, yeah, I was, I was still basically working on the same premise that I always did with the Marvel characters. But, you know, 
your love for Superman runs really, really deep. If you're a Superman fan at all, and, and not just a comic book fan, but a Superman fan, you owe it to yourself some summer to go to Metropolis, Illinois, mm-hmm. to the Superman celebration. I was lucky enough to be invited as a guest because Brett Breeding got me in. He was gonna do it one year and he got me invited. And, and I've gone twice uh, with my brother because we're just old time Superman fans. Uh, and I, so I've gone as a, just as, a, uh, as an attendee, as a, as a customer, I've gone twice. And it is fantastic. Uh, Metropolis, Illinois has a Superman museum that's got uh, uh, bits and pieces of things from all this, from the serials and the, the Chris Reeve movies and every game that's ever been produced and every costume that's ever been produced. And it's just got an amazing assortment of, of keepsakes and treasures from the TV series and the movies and everything. It's, it's just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And they invite Superman-oriented cast. They have a giant statue of Spider-Man in the town square. Uh, it, it's just a wonderful experience because it's not specifically about comics. It's about Superman as a cultural icon. Mm-hmm. You know, you will see kids in their Superman play suits riding on the shoulders of their dads who are wearing a Superman T-shirt and blue jeans and red gym shorts over his blue jeans. You know, that kind of thing. It's just fantastic because it it puts you in touch with the universality of a character like Superman. And make no mistake, I mean, you can work on Spider-Man, you can work on Thor. Superman is different. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, they, they talk about the fact that the the two symbols that seem to be the most universally recognized around the globe are the, the Christian and professionally it's a tough, very tough gig because we're doing the weekly, basically the weekly titles, and you had to produce quickly and and get your stuff into the machine and and get your layouts done and get your penciling done. You did not have time to sit with a plot. You did have, you know, I did not find myself having time, quite frankly, to do my best work. Uh, but, uh, you know, I survived it for a couple of years. And, uh, and you know, it is what it is. But, uh, you know, because I left, I left my regular title to do a Strange Visitor series, which we only did, a, we only did like four issues. Uh, that ran in the regular comics and that was initially a pilot for a series that didn't fly and when that didn't fly I, I said so I, do I get to go back to Superman and <laughs> and no because in the meantime they had hired a new editorial team and they had hired an entire new creative staff you know so uh, luckily I was able to go back go back to Marvel and do MC2 you know that kind of thing so um, but yes yeah, Superman to me is you know, I'm, I'm a Marvel guy, but Superman's the guy, you know? I mean, I have a lot of real, of that, that nostalgic connection to, to Superman. Uh, I love the new series that's on the CW, the Superman and Lois. I think it's fantastic. I, I, I love the actors, and I think they're telling some terrific stories, and I think they're nailing the character in ways that we maybe haven't seen uh, done as well in some of the other treatments 
but mm. um, that's just my opinion. But uh, yeah, I've you know I'm a big Superman guy. I think, I'm not going to find a, a, a bigger one, really. I don't. I defy anybody to be a bigger fan of <laughs> Superman than I am. I, I do think that uh, that what that show does right is it, it really conveys the warmth of, of Superman, which I think is in a lot of the adaptations feels like the thing that somehow isn't always carried across, or at least in the more modern adaptations, is that there's a there yeah. should be a general yeah. sense of warmth. You should, I mean, I guess the whole point is that when you see Superman, you feel better. Um, you know everything's going to be okay. You see Batman, you're like, oh shit. Uh, but if you see Bat- if you see Superman, yeah. you know it's supposed to make everyone feel calm. No, I, I completely agree. And and there's been this this tendency lately to see Superman to to get more and more comfortable with seeing Superman as well. He's a god among men. He has to feel no. Clark Kent does not feel in any way, shape, or form like a god again, uh, amongst men. You know, Clark Kent at his core is a kid from Kansas. And he's here to help. Ron, thanks again for spending so much time with me today. It's always a pleasure having you on. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you're always welcome back whenever you want to chat about anything. or when. Uh, but, yeah, it's always fun. And everyone should uh, definitely, you know, if, if they've already missed the cutoff, they should find wherever they can find Heroes Union number one because it's going to be, you know, uh, if, if nothing else, a good solid story with good solid artwork at an amazing price for the amount of content you're going to get. Well, thank you very much, Adam. Yeah, it comes out August 4th in comic shops everywhere that will order it. And uh, I appreciate it. Listen, that fun and that pleasure that uh, that you've talked about is always mutual. Uh, and uh, I, I love talking to you. Uh, I love talking to, to anybody that knows and loves comics as much as you do. And uh, it's one of my favorite subjects. So thanks, thank you very much, Adam. Keep doing what you're doing. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ron. Have a good night.